Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Monday, January 21st, will mark the 33rd anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day in America. A Baptist minister and activist, Dr. King became the most visible spokesperson and leader in the civil rights movement from 1954 to his death in 1968. He was best known for advancing civil rights through nonviolence and civil disobedience. How do you remember Dr. King today? How are young people of all colors and backgrounds taught the King legacy? In 2019, does America need Martin Luther King Jr. or his teachings and philosophy more than ever? Joining me to answer these questions and more is the distinguished scholar, University of Kentucky professor of history, author, co-editor of the Kentucky African American Encyclopedia, and pastor, Dr. Gerald Smith. It's an honor to have him on Think Humanities. Dr. Smith, welcome. Gerald, I will also call you because we're uh, acquaintances from several years back. What uh, thoughts and reflections do you have on this time period uh, and the celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. Day? Well, you know, I think about where we are as a society um, now in 2019 and where we were in 1968. Um, the year Martin Luther King was assassinated and um, cannot help but as a historian um, consider the sort of issues that King was addressing in 1968, um, but also think about how society um, was thinking about him in 1968. In 1968, he was viewed as a troublemaker. Um, in fact, uh, by 1967, he wasn't even on the Gallup poll as one of the most uh, admired leaders in the country. So to think about him in 68 and to think about him in 2019 and uh, each time uh, on the anniversary of his, um, or the commemoration rather, of his birthday, we think about what would Martin Luther King say and what would he do, whether, whatever the issue is. And I teach a course on King. Um, and um, so I often tell the students, I said, well, you know, unfortunately, we have commercialized his um, his birthday, you know, selling all kinds of things, uh, whether it's meals at restaurants, whether it's furniture or mattresses. And so we really don't think about, you know, what Martin Luther King would do or what he would say, except for the few hours of that one day, there's typically a unity parade or breakfast. And so when we get to this time of the year, uh, I often wonder... Um, why we have failed to adhere to his teachings and philosophy, you know, it's, um, um, you know, we don't, you know, in terms of our historical memory of King and who the true King was in terms of somebody who was not only concerned about, um, you know, economic inequality and housing um, and, um, of course, education and particularly poverty, but violence, um, you know, uh, um, um, an issue that just radiates throughout society, you know, all year long. And so we focus on unity and love, 
but we tend to overlook violence and violence and poverty in particular were were two ills that he was quite concerned about. In fact, there were three um, three major uh, evils that he focused on uh, and we're still dealing with today, and that is militarism, uh, materialism, and racism. And so from that standpoint, you know, almost 51 years to his death, they still uh, circulate our society. Of those three, materialism, militarism, and racism, what resonates to you and needs to be addressed more than the other, or are they all three still something that we, mm-hmm. we're grappling with and trying to find answers to? I think we're still grappling with all three. There's not one more important than the other. I think they're in various ways interconnect somehow. I think um, what we have yet failed to understand and, and fully accept when we think about King, uh, because um, you know we want to be an inclusive society, you know we want to be a respectful society, we want to be diverse. You know I think so often or too often rather we overlook the fact of who King was toward the end of his death. Um, Actually, when he gives the speech beyond Vietnam in 1967, you know, he comes to terms with the fact that people really don't know who he is and know his commitment. And, and um, you know, not long before his death, you know, King said these words. He said, you know, before I was a civil rights leader, I was a preacher of the gospel. You know, this was my first calling and yet remains my greatest commitment. And so we sort of forget who he was as a preacher of the gospel. And so I think, you know, however he responded to whatever particular issue, that would be first and foremost, particularly, you know, this, he'd be 90 years old Mm -hmm. had he lived. Um, You know, he stayed with that. He never strayed from who he was as a preacher of the gospel. But in doing so, you know, he still managed to promote love and healing um, and uh, justice for all folks. How has his... Uh, message uh, his philosophy changed in 33 years. If if it is, am I if I'm correct about this being the end of the 33rd anniversary of the of the declaration of his day? Um, I think mm-hmm. it's 1986. It could be mm-hmm. w- one year off or whatever. But I, I used 33. How has that message changed, or has it? It hasn't changed. I think um, I think more people have embraced that message. Uh, and looking at a sense of affirmation from Dr. King, even in death, that this is something that he would have wanted. Um, And so as a consequence, uh, King is ushered alongside of a number of different movements. And, you know, we'll see that. Um, But unfortunately, at the same time, uh, his his philosophy is uh, is often co-opted in ways that, you know, he probably no doubt would have uh, disagreed with. And, um, you know, particularly when we, you know, address issues like multiculturalism or affirmative action, um, you know, we, we sort of extrapolate certain phrases from that I have a dream speech that makes us feel good. Um, and, you know, it's like this is who we are. And, um, you know, I think King, if, if, obviously, if he were alive, would, would tell us to stop dreaming, but to wake up. 
Uh, and that's the problem. You know, we've been dreaming too long. Um, and, you know, he did say, you know, wake up, look around, see what's happening. Not only see, but, but listen uh, to what you're hearing. And is this who we really are? Uh, I don't have the, um, the line uh, accurately enough to quote it. Uh, you probably do know in the I Have a Dream speech, there is a line of close to the beginning of his address about um, America still not coming to grips with, uh, he used Negro, with the America still not um, answering the questions of, of the Negro today or something like that. And it, it, do you remember the, the, the better words than that? Yeah, he, you know, in that early part of that speech, he talked about um, the Negro being on um, this lonely island of poverty mm-hmm. in the midst of this vast ocean of material prosperity. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, you look at us now in terms of the federal government shutdown and how we are in uh, this society of prosperity, actually. Um, but yet and still, you know, we find people in long lines, you know, trying to get food and worrying about paying their bills, yet and still, you know, we're in a nation of material prosperity. And um, no doubt, you know, this is something that King would, would not only, you know, be angry about, but, you know, it, it, would, it would hurt him to know that after all these years, and after how well America has been blessed, you know, the richest nation in the world, that here we are, you know, our own people who are starving. Um, you know, I was meeting with uh, a teacher on yesterday, um, you know, looking at one of the schools here in, in Fayette County and how some of the children, you know, come into school and, you know, just not having certain basic needs met and how that's affecting their learning. And, um, you know, to know that after all these years, uh, and he's not just simply African-American kids. I mean, they're white and Hispanic, and they're coming, you know, from different places, but they all share this this common uh, problem. Um, I would think that anyone, but Dr. King would be disappointed but astounded at uh, that story and, and so many like it. Uh, 10,000 young people in Kentucky uh, in foster care. Uh, the number is is double and triple that of uh, children living with a grandparent or a guardian instead of their, their parent or a mom or a dad. Uh, th- he would have to address that in a way that, that he would be uh, profoundly affected and, and hurt by it as we, as we all are, yet we we don't seem to be doing much about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The um, I think that we, he would would probably tie that with our definition and understanding of what it means to be an American patriot, and how that connects with patriotism. Because you know we hear a lot about patriotism in our society. What's that mean in terms of you, know, you think about the protest of the NFL football players and so forth and. You know, King would would simply see patriotism um, and the way that he defined it would not necessarily, or not solely, rather, mean promoting and protecting American ideals, 
Um, but also, you know, patriotism would involve us protesting our moral uh, and social behavior. Uh, and sometimes in doing so, you have to take a very unpopular stance in order to advance uh, political, well, excuse me, in order to advance freedom and equality and justice. And that's what patriotism and all is about in terms of uh, pressing and pushing America to live up to its true ideals. You know, I was going to ask you about uh, the contemporary uh, debates and arguments that we have, the protests that we have. I, I, where would he be on the uh, Colin Kaepernick uh, uh, debate on kneeling uh, at the Star Swinkle Banner or the Me Too movement mm-hmm. or the Time's Out uh, movement. Mm-hmm. He, he'd be right there, wouldn't yeah, he? He'd be right there in the middle of it. Very proud. I think he'd be very proud of what Colin Kaepernick did um, in terms of using that platform um, in a very respectful way. But, you know, whatever it would take to, to disrupt society enough to cause us to step back and really think about who we are. And that's what it means to sort of take a very unpopular stance um, in the midst uh, of a situation where you know that your position can can draw attention to that problem but also potentially make a difference. And, you know, really getting um, African-American athletes more involved. I teach a course, another course on race and sport uh, in America. And uh, so in that course, um, you know, we look at sports from a cultural and historical and scientific uh, and ideological uh, uh, perspective, looking at those issues and debates surrounding the African-American athlete. And, um, and I think that's one, you know, in terms of where my, my scholarship is going now, um, I think sports and religion, you know, are, are two topics you know, that as a historian that I want to look at more closely. I think there's some some things around sports that we're, that, 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 um, we're really not fully examining because we're focusing on the game, we're focusing on the rivalry, the competition, you know, the athletes themselves. But, you know, understanding that race is a spectacle in sport and how we, how we view what's happening in our society racially through the lens of sports. What do you think we're missing by just concentrating on the game? What enlighten me on outside of that of yeah. what needs think, to be addressed? I think, one, I think the players themselves are not fully aware of the history of the game and their place, the sort of legacy um, that uh, has already been established when it comes to race and sport. I, I don't think they realize how much influence and power they have. Not necessarily um, um, calling a press conference and, you know, or tweeting something. Uh, that, 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 that King understood that there were creative ways of protesting uh, and making a difference without necessarily making a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that, um, and, and I say that particularly with college athletics. It's one thing for the athletes to do it, you know, who are making millions of dollars. But when we think about the civil rights movement in the early 1960s, um, one of the things that King and others used was young people, you know, they were college students and even children 
who were involved. There's a lot of controversy about you know, controversy surrounding um, the demonstrations in Birmingham and those kids getting involved. And so, you know, young people, particularly on the college level, um, you know, have a way of um, not only, you know, um, creating a certain level of disruption in society about what they do, but they can also really make a huge difference. I think, uh, and, it, and, and this not only involves the student athlete, but it also involves the student athlete's parents. For example, um, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of, you know, when the president uh, made comments about the NFL players protesting. And, you know, he said, you know, if I was one of the owners, I would fire you know, the mm -hmm. SOB and that sort of thing. And he made that comment and observation in Alabama, you know, where they have an outstanding football team mm -hmm. that is primarily made up of African-American athletes. And so... You know, I was thinking, well, so, you know, those those athletes, it was a time for them to say something. But if not saying anything, the other athletes who were being recruited there to think about whether or not they wanted to go there. Um, I tell my class, I said, you know, if I was a parent that had outstanding, my children were outstanding athletes, and there were a number of schools that were recruiting them, um, my decision and my guidance for them would not be determined about whether or not the school played on national television or had outstanding dressing rooms or even an outstanding coach for that matter. There would be other determining factors in terms of where we would go, which means that, um, you know, I would think about, okay, we're going to, we're looking at this school and my question to the coach or the athletic director or anybody in administration or the president would be, well, how many African-American faculty do you have? You know, how many African-Americans are in higher, uh, in higher administrative positions? You know, um, and then I would talk about the state's history, particularly if it was the, the premier institution in the state. And for example, if I was at Kentucky and, you know, I'd say, okay, we're thinking about University of Kentucky. Why should my son or my daughter come to Kentucky when over 70% of the population say that we should keep a Confederate statue in the state capitol? I don't know if I want to go to that state. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is a way to sort of, you know, get folk thinking mm -hmm. um, as a parent and as someone who's concerned about protecting their child and who they're, who's going to be influencing their child. It's a different way of looking at that. Uh, One of the other areas uh, on this uh, Kaepernick theme, which I didn't um, even know we would go to, but, but I think that um, you and, and Dr. King and, and many others uh, would also be disappointed that uh, Kaepernick is still without a team, mm -hmm. still... Um, uh, virtually uh, pushed aside, and and unfortunately, uh, I would think Dr. King, of course, he would agree that um, so many people uh, have agreed with the other side. Uh, I mean, sure, there there are there are supporters for that for the mo that movement, 
but there are also a lot of the, the, the owners, the NFL owners who backed, who backed away uh, from, from uh, the no-kneel policy and, uh, or changed it or the coach said, you know, we'll, we'll kneel in the, in the locker room or something like that. Didn't, didn't support him in that. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that ha- did that ever surprise you? It surprised me. I mean, did that, that protest didn't last long, although you ask Kaepernick how long it's lasted for him, and it's a lifetime. Right. Yeah, I mean, there, there is, um, the, you know, with these kind of movements, there comes a level of fatigue, one, um, where those who are involved, you know, get tired. Um, get tired of, you know, the criticism. Get tired of the lack of results. Um, you know, that's one thing that happened, you know, in the 50s and 60s. You know, they were able to sustain that movement for several years, you know, keep it at the forefront. Now there's so many other things going on, um, so many other, quote-unquote, some might call distractions, that it's hard to keep a level of focus on a particular movement, you know, like that. But, you know, the other thing is that, you know, um, I think what it, it what it really revealed is that even athletes have um, come to a point where they only have a, a, a certain level of respect and a certain level of power that um, that is really about education. And historically, you know, we have looked at athletic, uh, uh, athletics as being this way out, uh, this way to to be the spokesperson for the community, to represent the community, to save the community. Um, but it's really the education, you know. And and I'm and and please don't get me wrong, I'm. You know, you shouldn't have to sacrifice one for the other, mm-hmm. but um, but clearly it's promoting you know education and uh, but we're, we you know we've been on this treadmill for so long in terms of looking at athletics and what it means that um, it's hard to get off of that. It's hard to it's, it's it's hard to engineer young people into you know nobody wants to hear what the professor has to say. <laughs> You know, nobody's looking to get my autograph, you know. Mm-hmm. And so when you see, uh, and this comes back to what King was talking about, materialism, you know. Because mm-hmm. when we think about King, King King was very critical, particularly of middle-class African-Americans. Um, their individualism, their consumerism. And so had he been living today, you know, he would also be chiding the African-American community about some of these same things. That they didn't, the middle class didn't reach down and, and support those behind, uh, below well, them? Well, they did, but, but in the process, still getting caught up with the materialism. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we see it on television. You mm-hmm. know, it's everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and so, um, you know, one of my favorite uh, I had the privilege of working with, I didn't know if you know, the Martin Luther King Papers Project. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and um, so, um, um, very briefly, it, well, these were the never-before-published sermons of Dr. King. Well, anyway, um, in working with that project, one of my favorite sermons that King preached, actually in 1954, titled Rediscovering Precious Values. And in that sermon, and I have my students listen to it now, um, he preached it in, in Detroit, Michigan in um, February of 1954. And, um, and the sermon was based off Luke chapter 2, um, where, you know, Jesus' mother and father had gone to Jerusalem 
and on the way back, they left Jesus. They, they all, he was with them, but they forgot him, and they looked around like, where is it? And so they had to go back. So they had to go back and get Jesus, mm-hmm. rediscovering mm-hmm. a precious value. Mm-hmm. Well, the point is this, is that you know, King makes the case in the sermon that, um, that um, uh, our scientific genius, because of our scientific genius, we have you know, been able to make the world a neighborhood, but because we have failed in our moral and spiritual genius, we have failed to make it into a brotherhood. And so, um, you know, because of all of that, that, you know, we, you know, we have focused on this materialism and, and, and we have forgotten what's really important. You know, mm-hmm. morally and, mm-hmm. and spiritually. How do you think um, young people, not only the college age that, that you teach and, and have taught, but younger than that, how are they not only taught the King le- legacy, and I'm talking about kids of, of, of all race and, and all background, how are they taught the King legacy, and do they... Do they listen? Do they hear it? And do they practice it? Mm-hmm. Well, one, they've taught it through the I Have a Dream speech. You know, that's, you know, from, from elementary school on up, you know, it's, it's the I Have a Dream speech. You know, you judge, you know, by the content of your character rather than the color of your skin. I mean, that's reinforced, you know, the king was, you know, someone who loved the country, who was conservative, you know, who was a good, nice man, you know, um, who believe that we should all love each other, and you know, but but they haven't, um, they really haven't been introduced to the radical side of Martin Luther King, and um, you know some of his his writings, uh, in which he you know he was really critical of America, you know when I mean, you think about it, in 1967 when he, you know, uh, gives a speech in opposition to America's involvement in the Vietnam War and how. Um, and how he, you know, was moving beyond civil rights into human rights and, you know, really becoming a thorn in the flesh of the federal government, um, even to the point that, you know, some of his civil rights colleagues would begin to distance themselves from him. And so that kind of sacrifice that was there. I mean, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting is that the young people have more of a, uh, an interest in learning more about Malcolm X than Martin Luther King, um, you know, because Martin Luther King was considered to be odd. You know, he was a Christian. He's conservative. He was a nice guy. The true revolutionary was was Malcolm X. Um, but the closer you examine the two men's lives, you know, you see um, uh, Martin Luther King early on even being quite a revolutionary in his own political and theological thinking. I mean, I. Uh, and that, and that book that we did in, in 2000, uh, and I was one of the co-editors um, of the book, um, um, Mrs. King gave the project um, a personal letter uh, that um, uh, Martin had written to her. And um, no, it was one of the letters that nobody had ever seen before. It was in, mm-hmm. um, in her personal papers at home, um, but it's in this volume. Anyway, <clears throat> the letter was written uh, on July 18th, 1952. So it was written prior to their marriage, okay? They were dating. Um, she was in Boston. He was in Atlanta. And um, um, in, the, in the letter, he writes about how much he misses her. It kind of has a, 
uh, a romantic slant. But in the context of the letter, you know, he, they talk about reading a book, um, Edward Bellamy's book, Looking Backward. Uh, and, and then he tells her something in this very personal letter as a young man in 1952. He, he, tells, he, said, um, he said, let us continue to work, hope, and pray that we'll live to see a warless world, a redistribution of wealth, and a brotherhood that transcends race. This is the gospel I will preach to the world. So he's talking about a redistribution of wealth in 1952, right? Yeah. So this is long before, you know, uh, 11 years before the March on Washington and before the Vietnam speech. And, you know, so here is a, you know, here is a man that's, that's, that, that's, that not only talks about a redistribution of wealth, but who also is critical of the Constitution of the United States. You know, um, you know, as we'll see, you know, he's critical of the fact that the Constitution, you know, doesn't um, really deal with economic inequality, that the Constitution doesn't deal with um, uh, um, addressing racial issues as they were. So, yeah. On, um, on this commemoration this year, what is one or more ideal or thought that you have that you would like anyone listening to this or anyone would take away from a conversation that they may hear that that you would want to uh, them to, to to dwell deeply on that that might affect them personally or might possibly move them to action or speak to a, a larger number of people about a better way forward uh, in America today yeah, I think um, I think when I can consider his um, philosophy of nonviolence and the principles behind the philosophy of nonviolence, and I think particularly in the climate that we're in now, um, the political climate that we're in, uh, socially as well, um, I think I would I would draw from a couple of those principles, and one is that when you think about nonviolence, the, the, the intent of nonviolence is not to humiliate your opponent, but to win a friend. Uh, and that understand that um, it, 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 it's not the person that is evil, but it's the evil that is in our society. So in other words, don't take things so personal when you, and again, this kind of goes back to his I'm a preacher of the gospel, you know, that, you know, bottom line, you know, out of, you know, Paul writes out of Ephesians that, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and that sort of thing. So, you know, um, um, you know, King would want, uh, you know, you know, you don't disrespect folk, you know, it's just basic, you know, you, you, you know, you're constantly trying to see the good in them. Um, and you don't want to humiliate them. You don't want to degrade them. You know, you want to find the, you want to, you want to, uh, when, when, when he thinks about love, I mean, everybody's talking about love and what is that? And understanding when King was talking about love, you know, that love was, uh, love was understanding, love was redemptive, love was creative, you know, um, and, and, and what it would take for, for, for us to, 
to really come together, not just say, I love you. I mean, we know love's an action word, but okay, what does that really entail to love? Uh, and, and to make those kind of sacrifices to get, to be humble, you know, and that's what we've lost. We've lost our, and, and some would say we never had it, you know, humility. We, we have become arrogant, you know, uh, as, uh, and, and, and selfish. And this is a one-on-one, I mean, this isn't not one-on-one, this is an individual issue. You know, this is something that people have to uh, reconcile within themselves. Um, that, you know, we're, we're so, you know, and uh, we're so accustomed to wanting to compete. You know, and we're in a society. I mean, you know, you look at, everything's about a competition. Mm-hmm. Winners, losers. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, King would encourage us to, to notice to, to recognize what's happening when they're winners and losers. Somebody's hurt, you know, somebody's marginalized, you know, somebody feels less than. And so, you know, to pursue ways in which we can encourage one another rather than discourage. It's been such an honor to have you uh, with us, and I appreciate it. Uh, would love to have you back sometime to talk about some of the other uh, areas of your interest and in, in, in your work, uh, sports and and race. Uh, is um, a phenomenal um, area to, to explore and I don't think a lot of us think beyond just the game uh, what is there but uh, it's uh, it's an enormous uh, equation is it not in, oh, yes. in, in, yeah. in today's society and I didn't even get to the religion piece <laughs> as a pastor you know yeah <laughs> yeah well it, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you here and, and we want to have you back all right. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Enjoy. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud.